This is Mate, a digital radio show about marketing, advertising, technology, and entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey. This is episode number two, and if you're joining us for the first time, welcome. In this podcast, we interview interesting people about topics like digital marketing, the latest innovative tech, and what it means for the business world. Today, we have a perfect example of that. We're speaking to Ethan Dadaskalu. From his humble beginnings in hospitality, he's now known as one of Melbourne's biggest hustlers. We talk about his career trajectory, what he thinks the future of social media is, and he tells a very funny story about the time he met Gary Vaynerchuk. So let's get started. Introduce yourself. Uh, so my name's uh, Ethan Didaskalu. I run a business and founded a business called 3000 Thieves. We uh, specialise in curating amazing coffee experiences, specifically from uh, Melbourne and Victorian roasters, and um, ship those experiences to as many people around the world as we can. Great. We're going to get into that a little bit later on. That's not where you started your journey, though, right? No, it's not. I guess I Can just we... defaulted to the, uh, <laughs> the coffee bio. Um... Just wind back a bit um, <laughs> a few years and, and maybe explore how you got to where you are today. Yeah, I'm a, basically I'm a, I'm a hospitality boy um, in the blood and a marketer by trade. So, uh, you know, you can, they say you can take uh, the boy out of hospitality, but never hospitality out of the boy. So I've spent most of my life um, in the food industry, um, be it through, uh, I started a, um, a, uh, a takeaway store uh, back in the day. Uh, after I left Year 12, because I thought it would be, um, I could do it really, really well. Uh, my first entrepreneurial experience, and um, and we did. Um, we sold it for quite a bit of money, and I used that money to to travel the world and buy myself a car. Um, from there, I went back to uni, um, became a uh, became a marketer, um, and uh, used my skills to get a job at uh, DT Digital. Um, where I uh, started off as my first professional job and, and ended up leaving, um, leading the strategy team here uh, with another partner of mine, Alex Wood. And, um, and from there, uh, during my time at DT, I'd, uh, I'd started a little hobby, um, a little entrepreneurial hobby. Actually, I started a few of them, but um, 3,000 Thieves was the one that seemed to have taken off. And the one that got the most amount of growth um, with uh, with better with great time frames for, for while I was working full time, so it allowed the flexibility for me to grow this business without needing one hundred percent of my capacity. So it became it blossomed into this beautiful little business that had a lot of brand love and a lot of passion, um, and it's at a point now two years later where uh, I decided to focus full time on that business. Uh, and grow it to its full potential because we're really starting to see some amazing growth. Within those two years, we're seeing triple figures. Um, uh, we're seeing a lot more, uh, lot more uh, subscriber uptake. Um, but more importantly, we're seeing the, um, the love for what we do as a brand and as a product and as a service um, starting to really come through as something quite unique. Um, so it's actually gone past that real infancy stage where you're not making enough money uh, and you're not doing enough volume to consider your business real uh, and then all of a sudden you wake up one night and realize there's it's actually quite a big deal um, so and, and a lot of the times that that kind of business needs nurturing you can't just let it grow organically um, and we only live one life so I want to make sure that I give it a, a full crack 
Is that bio, bio enough for you? <laughs> it's good. It's good. So tell me about some of the businesses that didn't make the cut. Yeah, uh, probably the most recent in memory was um, was one that's coffee related as well, uh, and it was called uh, it was called Three Thousand Thieves on Demand, uh, and I was inspired by uh, one of the startups in the US called Magic. It was SMS based, and um, it was this beautiful concept in that you could SMS uh, this number anything you wanted. Um, and they would figure it out for you, bill you, and and get it out the door and make sure it, it was delivered same day. You know, really resource intensive, but quite a beautiful uh, user experience. SMS is a, a killer, it's a killer app that everybody knows how to use. Everybody's already downloaded. Um, and you know what the read rate is on, on SMS? What is it? 100%. <laughs> um, people tend to not ignore SMSs. So it was quite a beautiful mm. concept. And the process in which we developed this, I was actually quite proud in that um, I, I developed a, a using Stripe and a, and a really, really good developer. Um, we developed this process in which we actually pre-authenticate credit cards, but not actually bill it, which allowed us to then hold on to card details and make it really, really seamless for the second time that you actually purchase with us. Um, so people started to get really, really addicted to just SMSing us whatever they wanted and knowing that it's, it was going to be delivered same day. The beauty of this is that from the user's perspective, it was amazing. From our perspective, really resource intensive. Um, and we weren't doing volumes enough to carry, for me to pay the wages to carry it over the line. Mm. Um, and so with that investment, uh, it, was, uh, it, died a, uh, it died a quick life. Uh, we got a good six months out of it. Um, I think we made around $50,000 in revenue. We did okay. Uh, it was a good trial, but uh, because I was working full-time, that was one of the businesses that I would have loved to have continued to grow, mm-hmm. but just couldn't resource it as well as I'd wanted to. Mm-hmm. But in a, in a great reincarnation of, that, of a similar idea, um, we've now installed live chat on our website, mm-hmm. um, which I think is a beautiful thing because it's a... I'm, I'm going off on a tangent now, but I, I really love... Um, real human interaction uh, and I think it's something that um, businesses especially a lot of startups tend to they tend to want scale but don't do the things that aren't that scalable uh, things like human interaction having a real human being from uh, not from not outsourced from the Philippines or from India but to actually have them um, in the local area in which you're marketing to to respond to the queries and, and understanding their user needs I think it's a beautiful thing um, so the learnings that we gained from the SMS is that people don't expect um, a human to answer. They expect um, artificial intelligence to kick in. And I think that is, we have ourselves to blame for those things. Over the last 10 years, we've geared ourselves towards automation. And then when we get a human response, we're almost shocked. Uh, and that shock comes out in a, in a bit of a surprise and delight that, um, that I love to continue delivering. Mm. I was um, reading something the other day, which is kind of the inverse of what you just said there, um, where there's this um, this uh, company, I can't remember the name of it, which is a kind of like WhatsApp, but for business. So very similar to Slack, right? And he wanted some like positive, like some, some really frank and unbiased user feedback. So what he did was he set up a, a user profile that was called, you know, bot or something like that um and it was like you would go to it for help 
and people would write in um, questions and how to use the service and feature requests and things like that. And he actually um, was really specific and careful to respond in a way that sounded like it was automated. So he would write it as if it was a computer writing back um, so that people wouldn't feel bad about giving the real harsh and honest feedback. And that was kind of what gave him... um, you know the ideas for his product development. That's great. Kind of yeah. a cool idea. I think I think that's a great idea. Uh, there, there's a I remember there's, there's a history of people doing that. I think it's really good for MVP mm. to do things like that. I think it was Ardvark. Ardvark social questions. Do you remember that one? Yeah. Uh, so Ardvark was was all about um, ask through Google Chat. Ask uh, I think Google Talk it was called. Ask Ardvark anything, and you would get um, automated answers. The reality was you had five thousand students sitting in front of computers, um, busting out answers for your questions. And it made you, in, in, in real time, and it made it feel uh, intelligent. And um, then Google bought them uh, in the end and, and killed the product. But I guess, I guess they realized that there were, there, were no computer, there were no machines doing any kind of learning in that, in that instance. But um, it, it proved that uh, we're, we're trained to a point now where we expect computers mm. but i think the the future of uh, artificial intelligence is to actually assist human interaction it's like the more that we get technological advancements the more we crave a real human experience i bl- i think so um and i think this this sort of dystopian future of us uh, where everything's uh, automated everything's um efficient uh it's Efficiency is not humanity. Humanity thrives in the crack. We're getting we're getting very artsy right now, but humanity high, uh, thrives in the in the cracks mm-hmm. of what um, what is deemed to be appropriate, and uh, that's where the most interesting stuff comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to take us back a little bit to some of your experience, and I think you're, I guess, somewhat credited um, around Melbourne as being a bit of a, a hustler. What would you say to that? I'll take that. <laughs> anything, anything. I've got some gold Rolexes on me if you want, if you yeah. want to buy them. <laughs> um, do you think that kind of stems from any, you know, you said that you've started quite a few businesses in your time and um, it's taken you to, to where you are today with 3,000 Thieves and focusing on that. But, you know, what's, what's really driving that? What, what's, where's that passion coming from? Where's that hustle come from? Uh, well, I, I mean, many places, I think. Um, and I think it comes down to a few different inputs. And one that um, I think it runs in the family quite a bit. Um, so uh, I know that my, my dad uh, had a full-time job while he was doing uh, three or four other things, property developing being his biggest one. Um, my mum uh, was in insurance uh, then uh, went to become a dressmaker, then went to become um, a shoe importer, uh, opened up a, a store on Chapel Street, sold it, and has done a few things along the way as well, importing leathers and, and other materials and things like that. So I think there's an element of that, that um, uh, uh, a lack of risk aversion runs in the family mm-hmm. um, and that we like to try a few different things. Um, the other thing is I, I think there's an element of this growing up not growing up early growing up a little bit later but like between maybe um, 18 to, to 25 is that we really the internet really started to come to its own as um, a content platform and so we had all of a sudden we had this exposure 
uh, from uh, the US sources. And I know, Adam, you, you have similar tastes when it comes to those kinds of sources. Now they're a bit ubiquitous, but back then, when we're talking about Gary Vaynerchuk was ahead of his time, mm-hmm. uh, and he was by far, I remember sitting down with a good friend of mine, Paul Osborne. I'd started another failed business, a social media business, uh, that was targeting small to, medium, um, small to medium businesses that would help them get on social and do websites and things like that. And I, um, I was renting out the back office um, of a um, buyer's advocate, and, and also a good friend, Paul, Paul Osborne, secretagent.com.au. And he and I used to talk about um, where where technology was heading, where content was heading, where e-commerce was heading. And Gary Vaynerchuk was by far ahead of the curve on that one. Um, And we were starting to get all these inputs uh, that we'd never had before. We used to wake up in the morning. We'd sort of talk about, you know, 6.30, uh, 7 o'clock in the morning. And the first thing we'd read is the U.S. news on TechCrunch that would happen that night. Mm -hmm. Now, now that that doesn't happen so much because uh, news sources, uh, especially Australian news sources, have started to pick up on those kinds of trends. And they start reporting it now too. Um, But back then, you couldn't actually get anything. So I remember one of the daily habits we used to wake up, we used to read TechCrunch, and then go and have a coffee and talk about what we what we read, um, and and so I've, I've I noticed that the, that sort of wave of the web um, helped uh, bring forward a few opinions and sort of identify the fact that you've really got to you've really got to work for it, uh, and that hustle that American mentality of of hustling and getting things over the line and just get it done, um, their sort of lack of conservatism when it comes to uh, business is is a nice energy that. I think any entrepreneur, um, especially in Australia, is trying to channel. Uh, it's no mistake that the Americans are ahead of the game in that area. And it's, it's that beautiful energy that they provide that I think translates through video, through blogs, through anything that we try and encapsulate. Mm-hmm. You mentioned uh, a name a few times in there, Gary Vaynerchuk. Love, love Gary. So you've met Gary. I, I have met Gary. Tell me the story. Uh, I have met Gary. So uh, when I was running that, that social media business, um, before I started it at DT, I, uh, Gary was, was uh, due to speak in Sydney for Connect Now, or something, some really badly named uh, conference. Um, and I didn't have much money back then, so I snuck in, uh, pretended to be a student, uh, and snuck into this conference. There's that hustle mentality, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just because I was obsessed with Gary, I wanted to see Gary. Um, you know, this guy was, was a bit of an idol. So I snuck in and, um, and I wanted to prompt him to see if I could get him to, to tweet back to me. And I noticed that Gary uh, had bought this shirt that was purposely uh, wrinkled uh, and was wearing it. Like, he was, he was trying to be a cool guy. Um, but, you know, it was an, I remember it distinctly. It was an orange, an orange shirt. Uh, but that was purposely wrinkled like the, like, uh-huh. uh, like a fashion statement. It probably cost $300. And, I guarantee yeah. you did, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and so I tweeted him out, Gary V uh, doesn't like to iron his shirts. That's just how he rolls. <laughs> just before he was about to get on stage, because I know he likes checking them before, uh, before he walks up. And then he gets up and says, now, before I start, who's Ethan? I want to talk to Ethan. And I just froze in my chair. Uh, and uh, I put my hand up. I'm like, Gary, how are you? Uh, and, he, and, he's, and he goes, mate, I bought it like this. This is how I bought it. It's meant to be like this. Nice hat, by the way. Uh, trying, to, trying to hang it back on me as well. And, um, 
it was uh, it was quite funny, but a, but a proud moment nonetheless. Mm. You know, yeah, proud yeah. moment. That's my claim to fame. Yeah, it's my fifteen minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope there's uh, maybe some bigger stories to tell than that in the in the coming years. He's coming to Australia, isn't he? He's uh, yeah, he's on a book tour, um, and he's. He's going to come visit us. Uh, I'm not sure if he's coming to Melbourne or not, but um, we've been talking about going to see him. You and I are definitely going to go and see this guy. We're going to track him down and we're going to talk about his fashion again. <laughs> <laughs> well, we need to get some sort of... No, we need to top it, I think. We need to, we need to top what you did last time. So okay. We'll figure, we'll figure something out. <laughs> um, now, speaking about social media and, and things like that... Um, I think you and I initially met through Twitter back in the day when Twitter was like very um, networky. You know, it was it was really. I used to think of Twitter as where the thought leaders would go, so it was interesting people talking about interesting things, and that's kind of started to die a little bit, I think, now. But um, I, I guess I wanted to ask, what what are your thoughts on? how that's evolved and and what's happening in social at the moment. Because we're in a very different place today than we were even two or three years ago. Yeah, yeah, we are. It it does change quite a bit. Um, I I, I think as an overall trend that uh, social media... uh, Look, it's always been about connecting, um, but we we talk about this thing about content now, and social media has now skewed itself towards content itself and, and production of content we want to see more videos we don't just want status updates anymore we want to see content from our friends and family we want to see content from brands we're in this constant state of please entertain me um, and and in that sense uh, we're almost seeing a division of what uh, social was two or three years ago so and I'm going to use it I'm making this up but I'm going to use a good example, a good analogy in what I think works really, really well. In 10 years ago, the most popular car in Australia was the Ford Falcon. Uh, it was a good family-sized car. Uh, we, you know, it, it fit five people. It had a boot. It, was, it did the job. And, and sedans as a whole, as a category, were the clear winners in the car. So you've got the Holden Commodore, uh, the Ford Falcon, etc. Much like social media, in that sense, we had this sort of generic version of status updates and understanding what people were up to and connecting with friends and family. It did the base. It did the base job of our first incarnation of what social media was meant to be about. Today, the most popular cars um, are actually split in terms of you have your your micro segments, um, the really small cars that are good for zipping around, and then your slightly larger SUV cars. Um, which are people for the people who want the space. So you've almost had a division of what the, the general consumer wants. Um, and it could be quite more fragmented than that, but as, a, as an overall simplification of, of the industry, people love small cars and they love big cars. To refer that back to social media, I'm, I'm starting to find that from an entertainment perspective, just at a base level, I just want to smile or be entertained, show me some content. You're starting to see the uprise of Instagram, really snackable, um, uh, really snackable content, and then Snapchat as well, which is coming through the roof now. Snackable, show me something, entertain me, make me smile, small car segment. From the bigger side of things, you're starting to see things like, okay, blogs almost went out of fashion, but now long-form content in a snackable world, long-form content is almost becoming king again. You're starting to see brands like Medium really come into their own um, to, to highlight the value that long-form content is bringing. 
Um, and, never, and not like any time before, you know, we sort of, we either go through these fluxes, but at the moment now, I think they both sit uh, as top of the pile. They both are uh, valuable in their own right from a social media perspective. Um, and they're both, but they're both achieving different things, which has never really been um, the case before in the past. It's either been one or the other. I really feel like, uh, you know, remember that stage when blogging, everyone was blogging, you'd sign up for a blogger account mm. and that's all you did. You kind of just blogged and Twitter was just a way to get people back into, mm-hmm. into blogging. Um, whereas the, the sort of digestible bits of content are now, they're almost mutually exclusive. You know, you almost don't expect people to go from your, your Instagram account to your medium account. Um, but they both, yeah. they're both part of a, a very strong social media strategy. That you, you need both. You need somewhere for long-form content to live, but you also need this snackable side um, of rich media. Well, there's less and less um, reliance on trying to drive someone to a core destination anymore. Like, what's your what's your homepage now? Like, there isn't really any because every social channel has its huge emphasis on native content. So you want the video to play natively on Facebook so that it auto-plays when people are scrolling through in the feed rather than trying to get people to go back to YouTube and watch it there or to click through an article where you, you can you know, cross-sell and retarget and whatever against. Um, it's really just about getting the video view, video view on Facebook. And now Facebook is about to open up um, instant articles to the world um, in a couple of weeks, which is you know, native written content within Facebook. Um, long form. Yeah, long form. Yep, yeah. yep. So it's becoming incredibly fragmented because rather than having one central location and having, you know, six or seven key traffic drivers, you've now got six or seven fragmented dest- uh, destinations. I, I actually think the news organisations are doing this the best, so the people using instant news the most. Mm-hmm. Um, a great example, uh, I mean, New York, everyone uses the New York Times as a great example for, for rich content, but even The Economist famously uh, known for their uh, quite intelligent but long-winded um, articles and news pieces. They've reinvented how The Economist lives online, especially in social media. They've, they've distilled their key insights into either um, small chunks of, of digestible video, small chunks of uh, written insight that all lead to, if you want to read bigger pieces, go ahead and read it. But... Um, They've, they've understood that they need to actually split up what their content represents in the social world uh, in order for them to continue to be relevant. So who's the winner of, uh, of tomorrow in social? I, um, I believe that uh, from a platform perspective, I think Snapchat's a very interesting one in the sense that we have, um, uh, we have this digestible uh, bits of video, but also authenticity. So authenticity is a, one of the, the key... Um, one of the key traits that we actually can't mimic mm-hmm. um, from a social perspective. Instagram, you can take photos, uh, upload them later. Professional can, can edit them uh, and do whatever you want. But what Snapchat does really, really well is that you actually have to live the moment and be that person that you're trying to personify or you're trying to uh, show to the rest of the world. Uh, and that's actually half the battle. Um, and that's what makes Snapchat so unique. Well, that's a like human side of it which we talked about before yeah definitely yeah um you've got a quote on your uh twitter bio i'll uh, i'll read it back to you it says uh you're born with thirty thousand days to live the best strategic planning i can give you is to think about that 
What do you, what do you mean? Yeah, so that that I actually can't remember who uh, I think it's a famous scientist that um, or anthropologist that came up with that quote in particular. Well, I I was actually looking it up today um, to see if I could figure out who it's attributed to. And I couldn't find anyone except for your assets. So maybe you can find I've, I've, got, a, I've got a better social media presence than, uh, than, than the scientists community, I can tell you that. Um, no, it's, it's definitely, definitely not mine. I won't claim it, but I do love, um, I do love to use it uh, as much as possible because it was, a, it was a, the first time that I'd read it, it had reframed for me um, what, not what life was about, but what I needed to focus on. Um, and when you think about those 30,000 days to live, it gives, you a, it gives you a different perspective on how you should be looking at your life. Um, we are in a, an element of a race um, and that you've got to make the most of it before you get to the, the final finish line. Now, that, those 30,000 days, um, and I'm, I'm 30 years old right now, 10,000 of those days have already passed. Mm-hmm. And my last 10,000 days, I probably... Um, I want to be spending it with uh, grandkids and, and on a yacht uh, somewhere in the <laughs> Greek islands. So I've, it, it leaves me to believe that I've got 10,000 days left between mm-hmm. 30 and 60 years old to make the most amazing 10,000 days of my life. And well, the only... Well, yeah, you know, like once the 30,000 is up, is up, that's it. Well, that's right, you know, and I just think that the opportunity is in that 10,000 days. Mm-hmm. And it's not a, I don't say it to myself and I don't say it to others um, to instill a sense of pressure, um, but it helps narrow in what, that, what your focus should be about. It helps you uh, in a time where you need to make tough decisions um, to know that uh, you're not going to live forever mm-hmm. and that there is a task at hand. Um, and so, yeah, that 10,000 days left, I want to make the most of. So what do you want to do in those 10,000 days? <laughs> uh, well, the goal is to take over the world with 3,000 thieves um, and get everybody uh, drinking coffee. Can I, can I just interrupt for a quick, quick moment? Yeah. What, where did 10,000 thieves come from? So we 3, talked 000. about it before. So, sorry, <laughs> I'm getting confused. 10,000 10, days. Lots 10, of thousands. Um, yeah. yeah, sorry, 3,000 Thieves, the, the name. So you explained before it's a, a coffee roasting um, distribution business. Where's the name from? Yeah, 3,000 Thieves is a, a simple one. 3,000 is a tribute to uh, the postcode, um, to Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is a, a hat tip almost to the people in Melbourne who make this, this city an amazing place for coffee. And they're famous worldwide. So you can go anywhere in the world, you say you're from Melbourne, and people understand, they know that Melbourne is known for its coffee. Um, and there's a reason for it. Um, where, you know, the Italian immigration, um, you know, they really started to focus in on, on, on having Italian coffee, and then its evolution of that as, a, as sort of the third wave of progressive coffee. Um, so Melbourne's quite famous for it, and I use it as a marketing tool. Now, we have more roasters uh, in Melbourne per head, per capita than any other city in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, we're over 120, 130 roasters, coffee roasters. So we get these beans imported from Brazil, from around the equator, anywhere in the world. They come to Melbourne, we cook them, and then we ship them around the world. Mm-hmm. That, that, as a concept, is, is insane, that we're so famous for it. When our, when our consumption rates are kind of, we're around the, the 15th or 20th in the world. You know, the, the Scandinavians drink the most amount of coffee mm-hmm. in, anywhere in the world. Um, so, so it's a crazy thing for Melbourne's to, to be that famous. And then the thief element was, um, was this essence of, uh, there's a lot of wankers who enjoy the most amazing coffee. 
You know, you sort of, the people who are obsessed by high-grade coffee are, are people who are, you know, really sort of nerdy about it. No, I wouldn't say that they're wankers, but they, they hold a barrier up for the rest of the community to get involved because they feel like they can't get involved in that. Um, so the idea was that we were, this business, this concept was a Robin Hood uh, style persona in that it would come and, and steal that really good coffee away from the, um, you know, the, the sort of the coffee hipsters of, of yeah. Melbourne and then give it to the people and give it to the uh-huh. rest of the world and give them an understanding as to why they should be enjoying this. So a good, a good reference to that is that we always try and, and um, do a physical flavor shot for our coffees so that uh, at its simplest, you can identify what this coffee should be tasting like based on the picture you mm-hmm. don't need to be um you know you don't need to have your palate tuned mm-hmm. i like it all right so back to my initial question what is your i was kind of asking what, what do you want to do in your next ten thousand days but i asked you this the other day and I, i'll give you another opportunity to answer it what's your what, what are your dreams yeah, and and uh, <laughs> have you thought about it? <laughs> I remember I you asking me about my dreams and me uh, me struggling, me trying to, to lawyer my way out of it by saying, "Well, what define what dream is?" <laughs> uh, I gave you a heads up. And- well, I know what what is dream state. Um, I guess uh, my answer today is, is probably similar to my answer uh, that I gave you the other day, Adam. Uh, in that uh, dreams. Uh, have to be untied to reality because a dream for in order to reach a dream it must be tied to reality and therefore I think you're not getting the full um, potential of dreaming um, if you are dreaming with a, with a sense of reality tied to it you're really not taking it above and beyond um, but in saying that uh, we had a discussion a while back about high purposes mm-hmm. and the value that high purposes can bring, mm-hmm. regardless of whether you're actually achieving those high purposes or not. Uh, and I think we were speaking about, uh, there was a moment where, where uh, Kennedy walks into NASA and asks the cleaner, uh, what do you do here? And the cleaner replies with, I send people to the moon. And it was, a, it was an example of a good higher purpose um, to motivate his daily activities. I, I think that dreams and, and these uh, unrealistic aspirations actually have great purpose in aligning what our daily tasks could be and keeping us motivated to a single goal. Mm-hmm. Um, so as, as unrealistic as certain dreams may be, it means that our day-to-day activities feel justified um, and give yep. us a bit of purpose. So now that we've defined what a dream is and what it's useful for... <laughs> I didn't get away with that. <laughs> well, no, because you're talking about dreams are, are useful for motivation, right? And you seem inherently motivated already. Like, you've, you've got that hustle. So uh, do you have a dream that you're striving for? Like, is there kind of like a, a, a I made it moment? Yeah. The, <laughs> a, lot of, uh, a lot of people, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs talk about this I made it moment and I think none of them really ever get there because by the time they get to it, they've, they've shifted their perspective and they've, they've made a new I made it moment. That's right, Which yeah. is further, further along and bigger and better. But That's why I think dreams should never be financial um, because there's always going to be somebody who has more money mm-hmm. and there's always going to be somebody who... Uh, who is doing something better than you or doing something that you aspire to do, uh, it, will, it will never end. 
uh, in that sense. But I think that if I had to define it as one thing, I'd like to have one of my, I'd like my dream to be able to do something to, that would actually alter, um, that would actually make a difference in the world. And that sounds a bit corny actually, but I think, I'll give you a really great example and the one that everybody knows with Elon Musk um, is that there's a lot of entrepreneurs in this world uh, and then the ones that make it to the, to, the, to the top of the success ladder from a financial perspective end up having a choice. They end up living really, really wealthy lives or they end up donating a lot of it back and, and doing something for the community. Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg uh, are of the latter. Um, and then there are people who are uh, inherently... Uh, they, they think about changing the world in their, in, in their everyday business ideas. Uh, and and th- things like people like Elon Musk, as an example of that, um, where he's fundamentally building the framework that is going to alter humanity for the next century. And that is something, while, while grand and probably improbable, um, that would, if we're talking about aspirational dreams, to be in a league of that, of that talent would, be, um, would definitely be something that I'd like to, be, I'd like to reach. Mm-hmm. Well, that kind of dovetails really nicely into the other area I wanted to discuss with you today. What's really exciting you about technology um, at the moment? Uh, well... I think more than anything, virtual reality is a really interesting one, and because I've always thought it was quite stupid mm-hmm. for the last few years, uh, and and there's an element of me that still thinks it's stupid. You know, I uh, I just see that photo with Mark Zuckerberg and everyone's got the goggles on, and <laughs> yeah. it looks like the Apple ad 1985. You know, it's just everybody's like oh really, my God, zombies. Really unfortunate, and just the the grin on his face. <laughs> Absolute zombies. So it's there's still an element, an element of me that's that's this thing is really stupid. But there are two examples where I've, where I've seen virtual reality coming into its own that has genuinely got me excited. Um, Microsoft's Hololens, mm-hmm. uh, where we talk about a blended reality, um, where it understands the physical and real world context and then adds a layer on top of that. Mm-hmm. I think that has immense value to, to society. We will never ever want to be taken out of our physical world. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, there are moments where we might want to leave it, but we will always want to be grounded in the beauty that is Earth. Um, and if there is something that we can do to enhance that a little bit, um, I, I, see, I, I would take that on board 10 times over um, putting goggles on. So I see, I see specifically HoloLens and what they're doing from a blended reality perspective, something, um, something really, really interesting. The other thing is, um, and I can't remember the guy's name, but I'll follow up and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you exactly, um, is a, a team of developers who are... Um, helping the families of Alzheimer's disease and dementia through uh, giving them uh, a virtual reality experience of what it's like. And at at face value, you're like, yeah, okay, that that could kind of work. Until you start to understand the benefits of virtual reality, of being immersed in something that that something else is that um, somebody else has created, what you're really doing, in compared to a TV screen, what's really happening is that it is evoking empathy in you. You start to to believe, and you start to feel like you you're, you're in that world, and whatever happens in that world, you have empathy for. Um, so you start to believe those things, and so what what that does uh, from a let's say, from an Alzheimer's perspective, 
um, where or, or somebody can't manage to look after themselves or um, and, and things like that. It gives you empathy for the disease and it gives you empathy for the person, uh, which is something that I'd say society struggles a lot with. Um, and so these guys, once you when you see it, when you feel it, the your heart sinks and you start to really um, understand a different perspective. And I've seen virtual reality really come to light for, for that kind of social movement. Mm-hmm. Well, I, just just this past weekend, actually, I went and uh, did a virtual reality experience, this um, this place in North Melbourne called Zero Latency. I saw that. How was that? So it was it was awesome. Yeah. So basically, you, you go to this big um, abandoned warehouse that's just kind of got this like grid of um, like wires and stuff above you, um, and you put on... Uh, the Oculus Rift headset, some headphones, and they give you a gun. Um, and they've got, I don't know, like these lights that are on the top of your, your head and on the top of the gun that kind of track the movement of it in this three-dimensional space. Um, and when, when you put the goggles on, you're playing with five other people. So there's six of you in a team. And we played this um, zombie mission, so you got to go shoot all the zombies and whatever. And... You put the headset on, and the person who was standing next to you is now this, you know, black soldier dude with a gun, and he's in like khaki um, outfit, and and then you can like the when he starts walking, the dude starts walking. When he turns around, he turns around. When he like crouches down, he cr- and then puts his arms up with the gun wow, above his head. Like it's right. It's crazy, right? And it was it was really crazily believable. Like, the first time you put it on, you're like, oh, yeah, Oculus Rift, it's kind of, you know, it's not super high resolution. It's a little bit grainy. Um, but your your mind kind of forgets that pretty quickly. And then you're just in this, you're immersed in this fake kind of world. Or I don't know who am I to say what's fake and what's not. Um, but you're just immersed in this world because everything you do is real in it. Yeah. So you walk forwards and you move forwards. And you turn around and you turn around and you... Crouch down and you crouch. Did you feel your heart rate go up when you saw the zombies? So, I there was a few moments where like a zombie would come at you, and I would like I would legitimately step back and um, actually kind of ran into one of the other dudes that was in the game because I was like trying to avoid getting killed by this this zombie, and we collided. Um, so there is kind of like a, a real belief there. Um, there was a moment where you have to walk over like this platform, um, this long kind of like little plank that goes between two buildings and there's a sheer drop underneath. And I walked along and like, I, I can't not try and walk off the edge of this and see how it affects my body and how I feel. So I like turn perpendicular to the way that the, um, that the plank was going and I step off and I kind of like pause for a moment with my leg outstretched about to jump off the edge. And I was like, I don't think I should do this. It was such a bizarre feeling. And then I step forward and then you feel your foot like hit the concrete. Um, and you're like, oh yeah, it's, it's not real. <laughs> but in that moment, it feels real. So that, that, that's amazing. Like, and uh, you still get that sick feeling a little bit of, of falling off the edge, right? Uh, the question is, uh, I mean, we're getting to a bigger thing with virtual reality, but uh, can that be used for, for bad, uh, for evil? Can it be used in the wrong way to make the human mind, to trick the human mind into doing things and feeling things that um, could either be inhumane or 
Um, yeah, well, could it be used the other way, though? For amazing experiences as well, like... That's true, yeah. You, you could be on roller coasters or, you know, go on a holiday without leaving where you are or... So, so is virtual reality then the opportunity to maximise both uh, suffering and excitement from the human, the, the human range of emotions, virtual reality has the potential to then actually extend as far as we've ever been before mm. to reach true bliss and, and true sorrow. That's kind of frightening. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you're probably right. Like, why would you go into a, a fake world to just live mediocrity? You can, you can live mediocrity every day if you want. That's uh... so. I think that's a t-shirt slogan right there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I need a revenue model for this podcast. So, (laughs) Um, I had a few other kind of little topics. Um, One was mobile payments and financial tech. I know you've kind of got a few opinions about that. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts, particularly what it means for Australia, but there's, there's quite a few new entrants in financial tech. You, you've got some opinions about how the banks are handling things. How's technology going to, or how is it already disrupting that industry? It, look, the, the most interesting part is that, um, that uh, the question is, are banks going to be uh, dumb pipes for money? Um, and is there somebody else that's going to come in and cut their lunch? Um, I think what's happening right now is uh, Apple is using their weight in terms of scale. Scale and just num- sheer numbers and uptake um, to try and uh, turn the banks into just a facilitator uh, into, into uh, payments. The, the one thing, and, and purely because of regulation, the one thing that hasn't happened yet is that we are entrusting a global uh, or an American-owned financial institution with our money on a local level. So similar to how Uber and Airbnb operate in that um, we are trusting a, an American corporation um, with how we get by every day. Um, and you, Is that a problem, though? It's, it's not a problem Cause if they, if in they theory. Su- if they succeed, it's because they're doing better than what we're doing. In a, that's true, but the government, I mean, this, we don't live in a 100% free market uh, economy. We need government regulation in there. And I don't believe, this is a little bit controversial, but not really, in the sense that um, we, we can't survive in 100% free, free markets. We need uh, a level of security that is provided to us uh, by government. And that's to, that's to stop corruption, that's to stop cheating, um, that's what that's what that's that there is there for. So, in a free market uh, of disruption like what Uber's done with you know who's bypassed regulations and things like that, um, what we're finding is that we could find ourselves in a position where uh, a lot of U.S. companies end up taking over most of the the things that we've come to take for granted. Um, and if a lot of our investment money goes uh, into a, an American financial institution, we are making their economy a lot stronger and ours a lot weaker because of it. And I think that will have big repercussions. So right now, governments are, are stopping that from happening, but there needs to be a rate of innovation that happens locally for a long-term stop to that to happen. Uh, it hasn't happened yet, but I foresee an American startup bank opening up globally overnight 
um, that's distributing uh, credit cards and things like that as per any other bank would, um, that has deposit centres in places that any other bank would um, and really shakes up the, the global economy. But ultimately, banks make money off the money that they're holding, um, which... Is uh, which would go back to the U.S. economy most most likely. So I think there's a, I'm, I'm, I digress. There's there's uh, opportunities in the banking landscape. Um, the Commonwealth Bank seems to be doing the most innovation uh, on that front. Uh, I know Acorns um, is not an Australian concept, U.S. concept. Uh, we're talking about micro investing in, in a similar sense. That's the kind of threat that I see, but on a banking level, mm. um, they're coming into a local market. We're actually giving them our money, uh, and they're investing it in U.S. portfolios. Um, so there's there's uh, a scariness to what could happen if Australian mobile uh, and um, banking technology doesn't evolve to where it needs to be. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually, uh, user uptake and consumer demand, much like with Uber as well, is going to get to a point where they will demand for it to happen. We live in a democracy. The government will bend towards what the people want. Um, and it, for the better or for the worse uh, for, for our economy. I think we're up to the challenge, though. I think so, too. <laughs> I think so, too. We need to be pushed, though. You know, We mm. do need to be pushed. I mean, we didn't have streaming... We didn't have any streaming TV for six or seven years. It took for Netflix to say that they would come to Australia for the TV networks to get scared. And now we've got three or four of them, yeah. all substandard, subpar from what, what they should be. But it only takes a, a minor threat for us to react, but we need the threat. Yeah. Classic Australian. <laughs> um, so just to, to finish up, Ethan, is there anything that you wanted to plug? 3,000 Thieves... <laughs> Give you an opportunity? Uh, no, not, not particularly. I mean, 3,000 Thieves, uh, you can definitely Google us and, and check it out. Um, uh, they're not so much want to plug, but um, I, I think more than anything else, I'm excited to, to be on the, uh, the Mate podcast um, and to see where, where this is going to go as well. I think uh, I've had the pleasure of knowing Adam for a long time. Uh, you've been a great bloke. You've got some really interesting insights, and I want to see this... Uh, I'd love to see this go next level. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm honoured to be on the program. And when you get uh, Gary Vaynerchuk to talk next, uh, just allow me in the room so I can <laughs> take a photo. Thank you so much for listening to the second episode of Mate. This is a lot of fun. Now, you can find the show notes for today's episode at matepodcast.com two. If there's one thing I can ask from you... It's to head to your favorite podcasting app and find us and hit subscribe. It would mean the absolute world to me. Thank you so much to Ethan for coming on board the show today. I know you enjoyed it. Thank you to Courtney Carmen for designing our amazing looking logo. And the music for today was by Nine Inch Nails used under a Creative Commons license. Mate Podcast was made with love in Melbourne, Australia. I'm your host, Adam Jeffrey, signing off. We'll see you next time.